Section 19 of Henry II by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10 Finance, Part 1. Finance plays as prominent a part in public as in private life, and the fortunes of a nation are as much built upon a money basis as those of an individual this somewhat obvious truism is particularly applicable to the reign of henry the second owing to the important share taken by hired mercenary soldiers in his numerous campaigns the wealth at the king's disposal frequently enabling him to dispense with the service of disaffected or untrustworthy vassals and the main source of this wealth was england or at least it was from england that were drawn those extra supplies that formed the critical margin of safety for while we hear constantly of treasures sent from england to the king or his ministers in normandy we find no trace of any surplus from henry's continental treasuries reaching the treasury at winchester fortunately we possess the material for our examination in the series of revenue accounts known as the pipe rolls complete from the second to the last year of the reign the treasury with the controlling machinery of the exchequer had been fully organized under henry i and an analysis by sir james ramsay of the one surviving pipe roll of that king's reign that for the thirty-first year eleven thirty shows the total royal revenue to have been about twenty-seven thousand pounds during the anarchy that prevailed under stephen's nominal sovereignty the organization of the exchequer virtually fell into abeyance while there is no evidence of stephen having been at any time in difficulties for lack of money it is clear that his permanent and assured revenues must have been very small the districts in which his power was sufficiently established to ensure the collection of the royal dues varied from time to time and at best were limited while their yield was still further reduced by the lavish grants of crown domains with which he had been compelled to purchase the allegiance of powerful barons henry the second on coming to the throne had as we have seen resumed possession of the royal domains thus alienated and he also entrusted the reorganization of the exchequer to nigel bishop of ely order was thus restored though it was several years before we find the same elaboration of the financial network as was exhibited in eleven thirty a careful analysis of the pipe roll for eleven fifty six the first of the series shows that the total amount of the revenues dealt with which exclude the issues of the three northern counties still at that time in the hands of the king of scotland was in round figures twenty one thousand six hundred and fifty pounds but of this six thousand pounds has to be deducted for portions of the royal domains which had been granted to various persons and for payments pardoned or remitted by the king another twenty two hundred and fifty pounds had not been paid and was still owing a certain proportion being bad debts of the remainder nine thousand one hundred and twenty pounds was paid into the treasury in cash and four thousand two hundred and sixty pounds had been spent by the sheriffs and other accountants on the king's behalf in payment of alms repairs to buildings wages and miscellaneous purchases 
the actual revenue of this year may therefore be taken as about thirteen thousand pounds or rather less than half that of henry i in eleven thirty now turning to the consideration of the sources of revenue the first is the farms fermoy of the various counties and honours these being fixed sums at which the sheriffs of the counties or the farmers of the honours compounded for the issue of the lands under their control upon occasion a county might for some reason be without a sheriff in which case one or more wardens custodes would be appointed and they would answer in detail for the issues and received payment in reward for their services in some cases the totals of these issues amount as we should expect to more than the fixed farm the difference between the two sums being what the sheriff would have for his labour but occasionally and notably in the case of london the yield under custodes was considerably less than under a sheriff it is hardly conceivable that the sheriff in addition to the labour and responsibility of his official duties should have been expected to make a loss over the render of his farm but our knowledge of the methods by which the various monies were collected before they reached the exchequer is too slight to enable us to explain this phenomenon an incident which throws upon the question a light so uncertain as to render it almost more obscure occurred at the beginning of the becket controversy at a council held at woodstock in eleven sixty three the king demanded that a certain payment customarily made to the sheriffs from the lands of the counties under their control should in future be entered on the rolls and accounted for at the exchequer archbishop becket rejected the demand declaring that the payments in question were voluntary that they depended upon the good conduct of the sheriffs and that he would never consent to pay one penny on this account to the king the chronicler who relates this incident at most length adds that the payment in question was two shillings from every hide but this was almost certainly an error due to confusion with the danegeld the sheriff's aid about which the dispute arose was not levied on any fixed basis but varied in different parts of the country so far as we can see the object of king henry was to make the sheriffs more entirely dependent upon himself drawing them into the position of the custodes as mere salaried officials of the exchequer incidentally no doubt he hoped at the same time to obtain a substantial increase of revenue by appropriating the aid the objection voiced by becket seems to have been based precisely on the king's wish to make the sheriffs responsible solely to himself under the existing arrangement a sheriff who abused his authority ran the risk of losing the emoluments of his office and even with this check these officials and their underlings not infrequently misused their power extorting money from those under them and failing to account at the exchequer for money received so notorious indeed did their maladministration become that as we have seen in eleven seventy henry was driven to take summary action removing all the sheriffs from office and appointing commissions to inquire into their conduct some of the officials thus removed were fined and very few were restored to their former position but the new men appointed did not seem to have been greatly superior to their predecessors and it is clear that whatever the sheriff lost or made over his farm 
he certainly possessed valuable perquisites both legitimate and of doubtful legality the farms were the only fixed source of revenue but an uncertain amount could always be relied upon from legal procedure plaquita fines inflicted for breaches of either the common or forest law amercements levied on hundreds tithings or townships for murders payments made for leave to compound a suit begun in the king's court and penalties due from the defeated party in a judicial duel for the most part the items under this head were small though in the aggregate their amount was considerable but not infrequently we find heavy fines inflicted upon men of wealth for which no reason is given and which were in some cases no doubt arbitrary acts of extortion on the king's part in eleven sixty five earl hugh of norfolk paid half of a fine of a thousand marks while the abbot of st edmund's william cheney and two other east anglican magnates were immersed two hundred marks apiece that same year hugh de mortimer was fined five hundred marks the bishop of lincoln four hundred marks evo de harcourt three hundred marks ralph de cahanes and leftwin of york a like amount the abbot of westminster one hundred pounds and abraham the jew of london two thousand pounds the jews indeed were a fruitful source of income their financial genius had enabled them to concentrate most of the floating capital of the country in their hands they had almost as much a monopoly of ready money as they had of the trade of usury in this latter respect their monopoly was protected by the ban of the church directed against christian usurers and safe from competition they lent their money at their own terms usually about sixty per cent to litigants ambitious prelates or impoverished monasteries at one time financing an unauthorized expedition to ireland and at another assisting the king with large advances henry was too sensible of their value to persecute or to permit his subjects to persecute the jews but he had no scruples in finding them arbitrarily enormous sums which might have been crippling if they had ever paid more than a fraction of them and in eleven eighty eight when he ordered his other subjects to pay a tenth of their goods toward the crusade he made the jews contribute a quarter instead of a tenth in this latter case one of the london jews was allowed to compound for his share of the subsidy by a payment of two hundred pounds of which half was to be paid perhaps by the grim humour of the king on the sunday on which the canticle rejoice o jerusalem is sung it was in the previous year that the wealthiest of all the english jews the famous aaron of lincoln had died and by the law relating to usurers whether jew or christian his immense possessions equal apparently to more than the yearly revenues of the crown had fallen to the king only to perish in great part beneath the waves of the channel if the death of a usurer brought grist to the king's mill so did that of a prelate however inexcusable from a moral point of view the seizure of the issues of vacant bishoprics and abbeys may have been the temptation must have been strong for example the vacant abbey of glastonbury in eleven eighty one brought in six hundred pounds clear and next year the see of lincoln accountable for twelve hundred and ninety pounds and that of york for twelve hundred and sixty pounds 
Canterbury varied from 1100 to 1500 pounds. The farm of the bishopric of Winchester in 1172 was 1555 pounds. Ely produced nearly 900 pounds, and even Bath was worth 425 pounds clear in 1167. Very few lay honours approached even the smallest of these sums, but with lay estates as with clerical, the death of the tenant was made a source of profit to the king. If the heir were under age, he and his lands would be taken under the royal protection, and either managed directly for the king's benefit, or granted for a consideration, to some person of position, who might or might not be a relation of the heir, while the tenant's widow could be sold in marriage, or made to pay heavily for the right of following her own choice. Even if the heir were of age, and there were no widow to mulct, the new tenant would have to pay relief or death duties graduated on the simple lines of getting the utmost possible out of the landowner. For small estates, the normal rate of relief was five pounds for a knight's fee, the average value of a fee being at most twenty pounds. But in the case of large estates, the amount demanded seems, as we have said, to have been arbitrarily fixed by the king. In 1185, as much as 700 marks was demanded of the Countess of Warwick for the privilege of having her father's land, her dower, and liberty to remain single. To a certain extent, these enormous fines, whether inflicted as succession duties or for some other reasons, were bruta fulmina, defeating their own ends. Usually the debtor contented himself with paying yearly installments, sometimes round sums and sometimes strangely complicated amounts which suggest a sudden demand from the sheriff, satisfied by a prompt clearance of pockets. The first installment was as a rule substantial. Folk Paynell in 1180 paid 200 marks out of the 1,000 marks demanded of him for the honour of Bampton. But in the same year, Adam de Port, only paid forty pounds out of a similar fine for possession of his lands and his wife's inheritance in Normandy and for restoration to the king's good favour. Fines might thus drag on literally for generations, the instalments often showing a tendency to dwindle away until they ceased, and either the king excused the payment of the rest or the sheriff wrote it off as a bad debt. Almost any payment on account seems to have been accepted, and in 1187, William Fitz Ersenbald, who owed 2,156 pounds for arrears of farm of the silver mines of Carlisle, paid in the rather absurd amount of 13 shillings 4 pence. Although all these sources could be counted upon to yield something every year, the annual yield varied greatly. There were, however, means of raising extra occasional revenue of which the amount could be foretold with some accuracy. In the first place there was the Danegeld dating back to Saxon times. This was a tax of two shillings on every hide of land as rated in the Doomsday Survey. It was levied in 1156 when the accounts show that if it had been collected in full, it would have amounted to £4,550 but owing to extensive remissions and exemptions, extending to a little over £2,000, the total yield was only £2,500. For some unknown reason this tax was only levied once more in 1162, 
and was then allowed to fall into disuse of more doubtful legality but as a rule of greater profit were the aids auxilia dona assessed upon the counties and boroughs from time to time regulated apparently by the king's need of money and the taxable capacities of the districts assessed in eleven fifty six these aids yielded twenty one hundred pounds with a further one hundred pounds still owing while in eleven fifty nine according to sir james ramsay the amount was well over five thousand pounds on the latter occasion the aids were levied upon bishops certain of the wealthier lords clerical and lay and jews as well as upon the boroughs amongst the biggest payments were those of the city of london one thousand pounds norwich four hundred pounds york lincoln and northampton two hundred marks each the archbishop of york five hundred marks the bishops of durham winchester and lincoln a like amount and the abbot of st augustine's canterbury two hundred and twenty marks two years later york again paid two hundred marks but lincoln had risen and norwich fallen to two hundred pounds and london escaped with a thousand marks End of section nineteen